There are many pivotal moments in the life of any photographer, but there are two that I believe are especially important. There is that initial seduction when you create something that's sparked by how you see the world. When you see that vision translated into a finished photograph, especially a print, you feel something that is both powerful and self-affirming. It's that feeling that keeps you coming back. And when you do it long enough, you want to be known for more than just being a competent and talented technician. The camera has given you a voice that you might not have had otherwise. You want to say something. You want others to share the beauty that you've observed or reveal a truth that would otherwise be relegated to the shadows. Karen Sillis does both in her extensive body of work, whether she's exploring the lasting wounds of the Holocaust or the beauty of Lusitano horses, she understands that believing you have something to say comes with its own set of challenges that have nothing to do with the camera. I think that most artists have a very healthy level of self-doubt. And when I say self-doubt, we could insert the word fear as well. We have to figure out ways that we can overcome that to drive us forward, to have us find a way to be able to share what we're seeing, what we're responding to with the rest of the world. I imagine there's a bit of ego in that as well, if we think that we have a point of view. But that's been one of the hardest things to overcome. I'd like to think that I'm a fairly modest person, but when I see something that has moved me or if I can contribute in any way to a positive conversation or discussion about, for example, the work I'm doing for Loss and Beauty, then it's true. There's nothing that's going to stop me from doing that. We'll talk to Karen about her first career in the publishing industry and how it prepared her to be a photographer and how a lifelong love affair with the Lusitanos transformed her life. This is Ibarian X and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, welcome to the show. I'm glad you reached out and I really, as I said uh, before we started recording, really love the work. But I wanted to start off with acknowledging that this is your second career and that you had 20 years in the publishing industry before you made the leap to becoming a photographer. And I'm always always fascinated by people who, you know, make the leap from one career into another because that's something that a lot of people want to do, but sometimes don't for any variety of different reasons. And I'm just curious to hear your story in terms of how you made the leap from being involved as uh, in publishing in, mm-hmm. in some facet to becoming a, a photographer. Thank you. I, I'm delighted to talk about that because as it turns out, it's a, well, it was a perfect education for what I have to do now. And I never would have thought that. Mm. I uh, was involved in a family business for a long time and eventually ended up buying that business from my father. And for 20 years or so had a very large hand bindery on the East Coast. And what that means is that we did all of the work to put together things that machines couldn't do. So that required a dedicated workforce and lots of work on deadline and, well, knowing how to fix problems, as it were. But it also came along with a small printing company and some publishing, as well as fulfillment and distribution for publishers. And so I was involved in creating solutions of how to assemble and distribute printed pieces for the federal government and and for various industries. And that meant working with designers, working with layout, working with coming up with ideas about how to get things done, and then managing personnel, of course, (laughs) which is a different thing. But 20 years or so in the printing industry from all facets had me looking always at printed material. It went right along with the love of books that I've always had since I was a two-year-old child and prepared me for creating books as a photographer, but also, I think, instilled in me the habit of looking at how things were put together. Mm. So what what led you to move away from that? Did you already have a passion for photography and you just felt like 
you needed to leave one career behind and, and to make the leap into another? I definitely felt like I needed to leave a career behind, but the truth is that that career was leaving me behind. With the changes in technology, with the advent of computer publishing and desktop publishing, not only were binaries losing their way, but many, many, many other printing industries, that su- the printing companies that supported us had gone away. So it, it really was the change in technology, uh, along with some other policies that were implemented in 96 and thereafter. And so by the year 2000, I could see what was coming. I thought I needed to get away from deadline-oriented businesses and opened a landscape company because I wanted to work outside and, and be have my hands in the dirt and that kind of thing. Well, being a little bit of the overachiever that I have <laughs> been known to be, <laughs> within, oh, two months or so, I was uh, installing lawns and doing excavation and landscaping in almost 30 production housing communities. And I went from my little crew of three or four guys to having trucks and bobcats and many excavators and uh, yeah so <laughs> more deadlines <laughs> but it did enable me to travel in the winter time because there wasn't anything I could do when the ground was frozen and so I took those months in January and February and went to cold places like Scotland and and other well out of the way places and As I was doing that, I began to take photographs to document what I was seeing. I wasn't so much taking them as, well, not at all, in fact, as a photographer, just for my own record. And at one point, uh, someone said to me, well, we didn't know that you were a photographer. (laughs) I said quite candidly, well, I didn't either. And I thought then that perhaps I should look into this. I was much more interested in writing about what I was seeing, and I was making the photographs as a a document to help me with the writing later on. But I decided to educate myself the best that I could. I took a couple of workshops, one which was, well, both were life-changing. And in late 2005, I made the decision that this is what I wanted to do, against some very good advice, I might add. What were the two workshops that were so seminal in your Uh, The first was a workshop with Art Wolf, the noted photographer from Seattle. And in that workshop, I met a couple of people who have become lifelong friends. And one of those people insisted that I come with him to a workshop with Sam Abel later that year in October. That was absolutely life-changing. And as I think you know, Sam has been a dear friend and a mentor to me since that time. Yeah, those are two people that are, are, are a great way to start. <laughs> That's a really great way to start. It gets even better. A year after that workshop with Art, I was invited to come and work with him. And I directed the Art Wolf Digital Photography School for a couple of years. And as the director, which is one of my jobs there, my primary job was to bring the best photographers from around the country into Seattle to teach one-week intensives. And that way, I got to sit at the knees and listen and listen and listen to the finest photographers in the world. And, well, I'd like to think I'm a good listener, so. (laughs) Well, your images demonstrate that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) There are a lot of people who have sat at the feet of photographers like the ones you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. But not all of them can really take what they learn and really sort of run with it. Oh. to create their own personal significant bodies of work. You've already illustrated to us in a few minutes the kind of character that you have. That you know, once <laughs> you set out to do something, you, you make it happen and you make it make it big. Thank you. But when it comes to a, a personal creative outlet, that can be a little more of a challenge. Oh yes. Than say a traditional business, just because so much of you is is invested in the work. So tell me how that part of it made the process of making making a life out of this different? Well, I think that most artists have a very healthy level of self-doubt. And when I say self-doubt, we could insert the word fear as well. Um, mm-hmm. We have to figure out ways that we can overcome that to drive us forward, to have us find a way to be able to share what we're seeing, what we're responding to with the rest of the world. I imagine there's a bit of ego in that as well, if we think that we have a point of view. 
But that's been one of the hardest things to overcome. I'd like to think that I'm a fairly modest person, but when I see something that has moved me or if I can contribute in any way to a positive conversation or discussion about, for example, the work I'm doing for Loss and Beauty, then it's true. There's nothing that's going to stop me from doing that. As far as the business is concerned, it's a completely different thing than having to run the bindery. Uh, There are similarities, of course, a good work ethic, a willingness to do whatever it takes to to achieve a goal, and having some strategic planning involved or or creating a goal and then creating a a plan and the ability to implement that plan. Uh, Those things are all common for any business. But then I think it's that personal passion, that, that drive to want to share an experience, share what we see in the world, share in a way that we can create an image that that encourages conversation, an image that's involving, an image that has a, a lasting power. And what I mean by that is an image that we want to, that we're able to go back and look at time and again, discover something new, hopefully, or feel what we felt when we first saw the image and feel it anew each time. That is that is so key. I think that I've found that when I'm photographing or working on a project that I feel it's not that I want to do it, it's that I need to do it or that I have yes, to do it. That you must do it. When I'm coming from that place whatever insecurities I have in terms of my lack of skills and when in whatever facet, yes, whether it's technical, whether it's marketing, whatever it is, it's a little easier to supplant those feelings that would restrain me because the impulse is so much stronger. That's right. And I think that when you can find something that you are that passionate and determined to create, that's one of, one of the ways, if not the only way, to get past the insecurity because if you're if you're if you're making your choice of what to photograph and how to photograph from a strategic place thinking that this work is going to get me work or going to get me attention or going to get me likes no if you have that insecurity and that self doubt oh god it's just going to it's going to be a train yeah. wreck yeah that, that that doesn't have i'm i'm happy to say that that doesn't have any bearing on on how i create work and I still have that that little bit of self-doubt. You know, as I said, I've, I'm hard at work now on part two for Loss and Beauty. And I've just come back from a trip to Poland, Ukraine, and Lithuania. And I haven't photographed for this project since I stopped part one in 2015. So, you know, I had the doubt of, oh, gosh, you know, can I, can I get this rust off? Can I, can I... Mm connect again on that very deep way, in that very deep way that I need to because this subject matter is so sensitive. This is not just, uh, it's, well, I don't want to use, I don't want to compare, It's but it's not travel photography. This is, this is deep investigative work and on many levels, personal and, and societal. And why don't, we, why don't you explain what loss and beauty is to our listeners who may not have had a chance oh. to have a <laughs> Thank you. Loss and Beauty is a project that I began in earnest in 2011, and I composite original images to speak to personal journeys that victims of the Holocaust undertook, and relying on biography, on autobiography, and many, many, many trips to the East into the Czech Republic and Poland and beyond, uh, I photographed and created these composites that tell a story aesthetically, but oftentimes historically and emotionally as well, to give us a greater nuanced understanding of what we destroy when we hate. And what sparked this this journey for you? Well, um, it's easy for me to say, and I do always say, that I've been a student of history all of my life. I'm a voracious reader. But the first trip that I took from eastern, the eastern part of Germany and further eastern Europe, 
I wasn't able to make a single image that had anything authentic to say. <laughs> Absolutely mm. nothing. And I was so frustrated by this. I wanted to see more deeply. And I spent the next year reading and reading and reading and reading and trying to find a way into a deeper understanding, again, of the personal journeys that people had to make. And I came upon a book titled The Girls of Room 28 by Hannah Lorbrenner. And that story is about 14 young women who survived. Uh, they survived the ghetto in Theresienstadt and then in Auschwitz as well. 14 girls who survived more than four years in captivity, 14 girls out of 15,000 children that went through Theresienstadt, of whom there were fewer than 150 survivors. And so what I learned in that book was that these young women have memories of happiness and joy almost always surrounding the creative act. In other words, they were recording in their journals and in their diaries how happy they were and how thrilled they were with their friendships with the other girls who are part of this book. And they held those lessons throughout all of their lives, and it strengthened them. Uh, there was a, a pianist, her name was Alice Hertz Sommer. She was also a survivor, one of the oldest living survivors until three years ago when she passed. And she said that it was not too much to say, not too strong to say, that the music fed them. And I think we could extrapolate from these girls' stories that their writing and their recitals and their attendance for these recitals or acting in a play also fed them. And so from that, I took a sort of permission, if you will, to go back and try to find something to say in an artistic manner. Uh, talk about self-doubt. I, I was afraid the entire time that I was, by trying to create this project, this woman from West Virginia with a Protestant background, that, that somehow I would offend someone. I was afraid of it the entire time. And yet I knew that I had to do this. And so here we are today, and I'm working on part two. It's an interesting challenge you pose for yourself because it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's twofold. One, you are trying to make a more interesting image than you had previously. Yes. So you're, you know, you're thinking in terms of what's presented to you in terms of, you know, whatever subject matter. Yes. And also, you wanna, you wanna infuse that image with your own. I don't want to say your own personality, but something of yourself. Yes. And it's like, okay, how do you do that? <laughs> and then how do, how do I do it respectfully uh, with, yeah. the, with, the, with the deep sensitivity that the subject requires? And then the further question for me was, how do I make these photographs where I see beauty? And that's why we have the title mm -hmm. of the book, Loss and Beauty, because I was seeing beautiful things. And, and I'm, what I mean by that is to a, a photographer, light falling through a chemise hanging in a, and through a window was a beautiful sight. And yet, it had a deeper meaning. And I'm trying to illustrate that in the book, Loss and Beauty. The, the subtitle of the book is Creating Solace in a Land of Infinite Sorrow. Because this was not I mean, this was a, <laughs> to say it was a sad journey is, uh, it just sounds like a ridiculous statement. It's hard to make this travel. It's very hard to go time and time and time again to massacre sites and to killing sites and to death camps and to try to unravel bits of personal stories and then make an image that can speak to that level of pain and yet have hope. So it's a challenge. So what was your breakthrough through moment? Was there one particular photograph that you felt like, oh, this is one of, that where you saw that you were succeeding in what you were attempting to do? Yes, but it didn't happen while I was photographing. While I was photographing, particularly that first time when I went back after 2010, which was an complete and utter failure. When I went back a year later and arrived in Theresienstadt, unknown to me at the time, on the 70th anniversary of the first transport to Theresienstadt on the very day, I 
tried to photograph for three or four days feeling completely lost. And then I remembered something that Sam Abel had said to me that that has helped so much and, and I'm sure so many other students, and that is make the best available photograph. And so I put away the worry. I put away the expectation that, oh, now I'm working on a project, capital P project. I put all of that away and I began to make the best available photograph. And then things started to be okay. I spent another week or so and then I drove myself uh, another 700 kilometers further east to Auschwitz. I photographed there. And then I went back to the sunshine here in Portugal. And after a couple of weeks, I started to look at the images. And when I did, in a Lightroom on a light table format, the images started to have a conversation with each other. And I had the idea Mm. to lay one on top of the other uh, images that made sense to put together. And when I say made sense, I mean historically and aesthetically and from my travel. And the very first image that went together worked beautifully and I and I just I knew that I had hit on how I would try to tell this story. That's a, that's a wonderful moment. Yes. Yes it was. Because, <laughs> sometimes you really don't know if what you're doing when you're pressing the shutter release button whether it's going to work. And it's only later when you're sitting in front of the computer or you know or with your prints. Yes. that that you really understand what what was happening because so much of that stuff is subconscious. Yes, very much so. And then you have the epiphany and going, oh my God, this is what I was doing. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly right. Now keep in mind, it was five more years of work. (laughs) But, But, you know, that's okay. And now another couple for this part. But having that moment really kind of confirms that whatever amount of time you're going to dedicate to it, that you're doing something right. Absolutely. And and I want to say one one thing about that amount of time. I thought a couple of years in, when I had a a group of 15 or so images, that I could be done. And I talked to another dear friend, a friend of yours, Arthur Meyerson, and showed him some of the work. And he very wisely said to me, but is there more to be said? And I said, well, you know, it's hard to go back and forth and the journeys are hard and it's it's really sad and it takes me months to climb out of this emotionally. Mm. And he just waited and waited. And, and finally I came to him and I said, yes, there's there's more work that I can do. And he said, well, then go and do it. So, mm. One reason yeah. that I love Arthur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very insightful and wise man. Yes. So you're working on a second, like a follow-up to this first one. I am. I am. And that's the story of what happened in the years of 1939 to 1942. When we think of Auschwitz in our memory today, in our collective memory, it's so monolithic. Uh, we for, Many people don't know, most people don't know what happened with the Einsatzgruppen, the killing squads, and what has been called now the Holocaust by bullets. And that story is so complex and so integral to how Auschwitz and Auschwitz-Birkenau came about uh, that I felt that I had to go and and try to tell this story as well. And can you give us a little primer in terms of what that was about? Yes, uh, absolutely. The Einsatzgruppen is responsible for the killing of, uh, the numbers vary, but more or less two million souls, and that at the end of of a gun. And this, these squads, there were four groups, groups A, B, C, and D, followed roughly behind the Wehrmacht with um, lists of people from villages that they needed to, to pull out and in many cases either to imprison or murder on the spot. They wanted to destroy the fabric of the communities and they knew that by killing the the mayors, the doctors, the lawyers, the professors, the pillars of society, they could destroy the fabric of those communities and make their control over those communities then that much easier. And then as time passed, various political pressures came to bear and the killing shifted from the intelligentsia to the murder of Jews. 
and other marginalized groups as well. And that went on for two and a half years, almost three years, before the industrial killing camp that we know of as Auschwitz came into being. And Auschwitz only came into being through trial and error for what happened in Belzech and Sobibor and Treblinka and Majdanek. And I don't, we do want to talk about photography, but (laughs) the reason for this project was to try to tell this story because so few people are aware of it. Yeah. And I think you provide an entry into that history through a means that people who otherwise might not learn about these stories, uh, it allows them to. I hope you're correct. That's, that is absolutely uh, why I'm doing it, and, and I hope that you are correct. Thank you for that. During the earlier part of this year, I was preoccupied with getting to episode 500. It was an important episode for many reasons, not least of which was it being a benchmark that I couldn't have imagined 14 years ago. And as satisfying as it is, what I'm feeling now is an incredible sense of confidence and pride in knowing that this show offers something very unique, very special. Though there are an estimated 900,000 podcasts currently available, I know we bring something that you won't find anywhere else. I don't mean this as a diss to other shows. It's just that I'm so fully invested in what I, Martin, Cynthia, our guest, and you as a listener have helped to build here. Though I know I'd probably still be doing this if I only had 12 listeners, it's knowing that you love hearing each episode as much as I love creating it. If you agree and feel that the show makes a difference in your photographic life, make the choice to support us. Do that today by becoming a Patreon supporter. With your regular monthly donation of $5 or more a month, You help us to meet the cost of production and give me the flexibility I need to research each guest and conduct interviews. Sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Thanks. The other work uh, that you have, uh, which I referred to earlier, is uh, Lusitano, which is a completely different subject matter. Yes. Um, Is anything, it's not dark at all. No, Um, no, no. It's it's full of life and love and passion. Why don't you explain what Lusitano is and how you came to fall in love with the subject matter? (laughs) I'm happy to do that. A Lusitano is a breed of horse, and that breed is a Portuguese breed or an Iberic breed, if you will. It's also the horse of kings, if you can imagine the great masters' paintings of kings sitting on their beautiful horses. Those are Iberic horses. And that happened for two reasons. One, because they are beautiful and and they look majestic. But two, they're also a very tractable breed, meaning they're very kind. They're not likely to dump the king. And if you're the king's equerry, (laughs) you want him sitting on a horse that he's (laughs) going to feel pretty good on. I've been a horse person all of my life since I came out of the womb loving horses. Coming to the Lusitano in 2005, I sat on road and photographed my first Lusitano. Uh, It changed how I felt about all other horses. I still love all horses, but I love this one the most. What was it about that experience that was so different? The completely honest answer is this. Sitting on a Lusitano... There's an incredible vibration that comes from the horse that makes you feel connected up and down to everything in your world in that moment, to the ground, to the heavens above, to the soul and the spirit of that horse. If you're open to it, the Lusitano will give you that long before any other breed of horse will. Yeah, It was interesting in your book how you talk about the connection that the Lusitano has uh, with a person who is responsible for their care. Yes. And, yes. That's, that's, and I know that that exists with people and their horses, but it seems like at least for the people who made, have made Lusitano a part of, part of their lives, 
that that is one of the reasons why these animals are so uh, held in such a high in such high esteem and are, and are so and are loved so passionately. I think that you're correct about that, and it's why the aficionados of the Lusitano are passionate about the breed. We do understand that extra dimension, that extra, well, a considerable extra bit of generosity that the Lusitano offers. And if you come to the Lusitano with an open heart and a, and a trusting attitude or a trusting soul, he's going to return it to you tenfold. Yeah. What's interesting about the, the photographs in, in the book is the variety of ways that I get to experience the horse, <laughs> or the horses that you photograph in there. Oh, because of the you. way they use color and the way they use the environment and space, it's not, I don't feel like I'm, like the images are being repeated, going, okay, one more horse I got to look at. You know, it's not anything, <laughs> it's not anything like that because I, I get the, I guess to some degree, I get to experience uh, these horses as their own beings. Yes, thank and you. And that's really lovely. But I, I, I can. It must be sort of a, a challenge because there is a lot of long legacy of photographers documenting horses. Yes. Right. And so, in terms of being able to create your own your own way, your own mm-hmm. voice in in photographing them. You are you looking at your website, and obviously, from what we just talked about, you photograph a lot of different subject matters, and in, in, yes. in terms of not just subject matter, but just themes and ideas. Yes. But how 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 do you come to getting to a place where you feel this is the way that I I have to photograph this subject? This is such you a good question. <laughs> Thank you. The I'm always going to come back to the basics of very good photography, meaning that we must all be students of light. We must all pay attention to our backgrounds. We must all think about the gesture that our subject, be it a tree, a person, a dog, or a horse, or anything, is ready to offer to us. But all of those things, if we're working well, and if we've studied well, and are committed to our practice, all of those things should be instinctive. And then our job is to connect on such a deep level with our subject that our viewer should be able to feel what it is we were feeling when we made the photograph, or at Mm -hmm. least come toward it. And so because I have such a deep love for horses and for all animals, really, but for these Lusitanos, it's easy for me to... Again, to bring all of my learning and understanding about my craft to bear and almost forget that then and just be there with the horse. And and then I have that other bit as well where I have been a rider all of my life. And so I know the the moment of peak gesture that the horse is going to give me when he's changing from one gate to the other or a a peak movement within a gate, a a trot or a canter. Mm -hmm. But my favorite moments are the quiet moments uh, with the the mother and the foal in the field when the foal is interacting with the mom when it's less than two hours old or uh, in the in the wash stall in Brazil, when I just made, I have this little funny sound that I make to have the the horses perk their ears up, and he turns and he looked at me, and that curve in his neck is so perfect, but then the, oh. the mm-hmm. eye is so soft at the same time. That's a moment of connection, and those are the things I want, I try to depict. I want those moments that are eternal, those moments that are the essence of relationship and the essence of my subject coming through to be depicted. You've photographed in Brazil, you photographed in Portugal, you photographed in the, in the States, and you're in basically this community. Yes. Um, talk to me about the importance of finding your place in those communities so that you can make the photographs that you do. <laughs> When I first traveled to Brazil, I was traveling with my uh, longtime dressage teacher, the classical dressage master, Dominique Barbier, and his wife, Deborah. And while I was working for them, photographing horses that they were interested in buying and sharing with clients and photographing to to uh, 
to have work to put on their website and, and use in their videos and so forth. Because I was traveling with them, I had instant entree to the very finest breeders in Brazil. And that helped because then I got to see the best horses. <laughs> and then I got to ride the best horses every once in a while. So that was immediate access. And all photographers need access, as we know. There's an even lovelier story in that I photographed a man for a couple of years. And I didn't talk to him for a couple of years. But after two years or so, I did. And he invited me to dinner. And uh, we ended up husband and wife. And that man was the finest presenter of Lusitano horses in the world. No exaggeration. And he would travel from country to country as um, their expositions were happening and train and present uh, Lusitanos from one year to four years old for the finest breeders. Because when their horses were presented in the very best way, then they, they showed themselves in the very best way, much like in the way that I try to photograph them. And then the horses and the breeder... Um, there's more value for the horse. There's a, a greater commercial aspect to it, but certainly much more pride involved in having created your, your own breed, put your own stamp on how you think the Lusitano should be. Well, it ended in a tragedy uh, with the death of my husband, but the love of the Lusitano and the love of the community that I'm surrounded by here in Portugal makes everything that much easier and that much sweeter and nice to come home to in between all the travel and the work and the other projects. Was it that audience that you came to know and who you came to rely on for producing the work? Did they end up becoming the, the clients for your prints and, and books or did you find that elsewhere? Uh, I have largely found it elsewhere. The books and, and a lot of the magazine work, uh, I do receive commissions and I do travel uh, to do that work, which I'm very happy about. And I've just, in fact, opened a restaurant here, not me. I was invited to uh, provide, gosh, 25 pieces, fairly large pieces, for a brand new restaurant in Lisbon in Portugal, owned by a breeder. Uh, who had seen my work and admired it. And I'm delighted with how that project has turned out. And so many more people are seeing the work because of that breeder. But I've never had to rely on the work from the horses for my income. And so while I do get paid for it, and, and I really enjoy that, I do it for the love of it. And, and I think I'll continue to as well. I know that I will. So do you derive um, income from other type of photography work or do you rely on income from something else? Yes. Uh, well, I do derive income from the sales of books, but those are mostly from people who love horses and not necessarily the breeders of the horses because the, the Lusitano is a very small breed um, in comparison to the thoroughbred or the, the quarter horse or that type of thing. But people who love beautiful photographs of horses do enjoy the books. And there have been uh, several. Yes, I, I teach around the world. I teach uh, intensive uh, one-week courses. And I maintain a wonderful group of students who mentor with me. And I do sell prints and other books as well because we have the, the Loss and Beauty project. And we have a very special project with my uh, publisher, Veritas Editions. It's a platinum palladium edition of, um, it's a, uh, the title is Cavallo Lusitano. It's a book produced in Portuguese and in English, but it's a fine press edition. And what that means is that every single bit of this book is created by, uh, by an artist. We have a wonderful walnut box. It looks like a clamshell, if you will, but it's made out of solid walnut. And the book inside is 100% letterpressed, individual pages, handmade paper, platinum palladium prints from Stan Klimek, a master printer who has done work over the decades for 21st editions for people like Greg Gorman, your friend, and George Tice and Sally Mann. And I mean, just to have my name mentioned with these people is, is an incredible thing for me. But as I said, a letterpress work from, from Titan Press in Washington, a beautiful piece of uh, handmade felt that cradles the book in the box. 
a portfolio of gum over palladium prints in the back, and uh, the list goes on. <laughs> so it is a, it's truly a work of art and a, and a labor of love, uh, an homage to my late husband. That book is uh, available and doing well. It's a very limited edition. There are only 19 left now uh, from uh-huh. a group of from 25. So as most photographers, that in, in, income has to come from many different streams these days. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, you, we mentioned Arthur, we mentioned Sam, Art, mm-hmm. and you know, all who are wonderful teachers. Yes. And not everyone who is a photographer can be a good teacher. That's true. But it seems, it, from what I'm hearing, people love working with you. But how did you come to decide to teach? Did someone say, you should be doing this? Um, yes, actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, they did. And it was a teacher whom I had come out to Seattle to teach software courses very often. And as he he was a good friend of our he is a good friend of our wolves as well and the three of us would sit and discuss images and we'd discuss images that art had made or i had made or rick had made or images that we'd seen from another student or another friend of a photographer and rick uh, would comment often well you have a really good way of breaking down an image of what's working what's not working and I said, well, you know, I've had really good teachers. And he said, yes, but you have a way of communicating it. Why don't you mm-hmm. come and teach a class on the East Coast with me? And that was way back in 2007. And I said, well, I'd be delighted. And I loved it. There's so much inspiration that students give to their teachers. See, this is the, this is the secret that students don't mm-hmm. know. <laughs> inspiration and that little bit of kick in the pants, if you will, you know, that, oh my gosh, that's, that's creative. That's amazing. I never thought to see something that way. And then you want to go out and and try to, to see more deeply. And one of the things that it helped me to do is understand what the hell I'm doing. That's exactly right. Because when you're, when you have to teach, you have to sort of break down what, well, I had to break down what am I doing because I never really had to think about it because I would just go out there and do it. But when I have to show somebody else and explain right. it, you I must have think to critically. Yeah. Yes. And it's really fascinating because you go, oh, oh, and you make so many nice discoveries about your approach. And then you realize how, how systematic and intuitive process can be. Yes. Does that make sense? It, it's, it's it, you know, they, they follow right along. If you use the analogy of a rail track, they have to follow right along together in this parallel fashion. Mm, we have to yeah. know all of those other things, all of the technical things. And, and as I was speaking earlier about knowing our craft, and then we have to forget it so that we can be. And that's mm. when we bring ourselves to the images that we create. When you were, you know, putting together these these books it's always really kind of interesting when you're sitting down and you know you lay out the prints or you got the the dummies the you know the layouts and it always provides a, a, an opportunity to have a completely different relationship with your work yes what have you learned from doing that that has informed the way you you approach the actual picture taking so one of my favorite things about bookmaking is the art of sequencing a book. And I have found, well, the best way I can describe it is to say that it's a bit like creating a musical score, that the photographs have their own language, they have their own story they want to tell, if you've done your work well. And you have to be with the images and sit and listen to the story or the the rhythm if you will or the music that you can that you can hear from being that close to them i'm not articulating this well what i mean is that when we sequence a book we want to engage the reader immediately but we don't want to hit them with our best work right off that would be like putting the last bars of a symphony in the very beginning. No, Mm -hmm. we we want to bring our reader, our viewer along on a journey, but we want to keep them engaged. And that takes a certain rhythm. And so putting books together, when I'm out photographing, 
you know, I had a thought about that, but I, I'm, I'm going to change it. I'm going to say, no, I'm going to go back to what Sam said so many years ago, and that is make the best available photograph. If we're being authentic when we're out working and we're working on our project, our heart and our mind is engaged in that project. And there's something that takes over from the subconscious that will then allow the thread of the photographs to rise up. And as we're doing that sequencing and as we're putting those those books together, that thread will shine through if we've done our work well. No, that's gold. Yeah, that's very true. You know, I, you. I think that uh, there's so many different parts of our brain that we have to compartmentalize yes. when we're doing different things. Yes. And then when you're out there just creating, that's it. You just create, you don't edit, you don't critique, you don't, you just, you just make the damn picture. <laughs> and then right. later on, you can figure out what the heck you were doing right, doing wrong, what you need that's to do right. more of, what you need to do less of. And there's value in checking in. And that's why I love long-term projects, because there is value in checking in. You know, when I came back that first time after 2011 from that first trip where I was making serious images, I mentioned that I let the images sit for a couple of weeks and I yeah. didn't bother them for a while. And then I went back because we have to let go of the emotional heat or the, the, that bit of ego in us that says, oh, I, you know, I went out and I made some great images. Well, we have to let that go. And we especially have to let go of how hard it was to make an image. I hear that over and over and over again. And it's admirable that people are making efforts to, to create an image. But in the end, it has absolutely nothing to do with the image itself. The image has to stand on its own. And so we have to let go of that emotional attachment to it and see if the images have something authentic to say. And again, if we've done our job correctly, and if we've been in the moment, as it were, while we're photographing, there's a part of us, and I really think that it goes back to what our intent about our work is. There's something in our brains, subconsciously, that carries us through. And that's then a couple of weeks later, when we're looking at images together, then we see that common thread. We see the story that's being told through that. And so checking back in in a long-term project, and particularly having a mentor or having a collaborator whose aesthetic you trust or admire or respect, having someone to check in about that can help you see things that you didn't see before. Having someone to help you sequence those images will make that narrative so much stronger and will help you to see what's not working as well. And those things almost always, well, for me, as soon as I could see something that wasn't working, I could let it go immediately. I, I, I have been lucky. I've never felt a need to force an image to work with another because I see the value of strong editing and very strong sequencing. I can see it right away. And happily, I can illustrate that with my mentoring students and, and with people who come to my book class as well. Yeah, and it's a strong it, learning. Yeah, and it, it really speaks to the importance of thing, seeing things to completion. Yes. Because you only get that epiphany as a result of getting to the end of it yes, and, and getting to the editing process. Cause if, if, if all you're doing is creating a lot of open-ended projects, you'll never ever make that those discoveries. So that's, that's right. why I'm a, I'm a big proponent of long-term projects, but also a project I can finish in a day. Oh, right? That's exciting. Just, oh, just, just, I'm going to go shoot this. And just so I can say I began it and I finished it. Yes. And like you said, I let the images sit for a while, but just to have just to have that, because otherwise I'm working on a couple of projects that are probably going to take me years. Yes. And it's like, well, I need to find something that I can finish in between that. Sure. You know? That's exactly That's so right. We you know the wheels greased. <laughs> That's exactly right. And it keeps our our photographic seeing. Um, how can I put this? Well, we we're agile. You know, we, we can move from one thing to another because while I do have long-term projects, I have, you know, I'm out, I'm, I'm taking people to Morocco or Scotland or here in Portugal, and that's a completely 
completely different type of seeing than working, you know, in, in Eastern Europe. But I want to be agile and I want to make photographs that have meaning or have impact at the very least. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a fan of projects of all different lengths. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer, uh, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? It has to be only one person. That's what I try to do. I try to hold people down to one. Sometimes they okay. get a little out of control, but. Okay. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm going to uh, recommend the work and having a discussion and getting to know a little bit about Charlie Waite. He's an, an, an English gentleman, a renowned landscape photographer, but has a deeply compassionate way of looking at photography, of creating photography, and encouraging other photographers to do their best work. Well, thanks for that. And thank you for your time. I really appreciate uh, you talking with us tonight. This has been such a great pleasure. I thank you. Thanks to Karen for joining us. Find out more about her and her work by visiting karensillis.com. And if you purchase her book, please use our Amazon link in the show notes, which provides you yet another way to support the show. I'll be in Washington, D.C. for the Focus on the Story Photo Festival in May, a Memento Photographic Workshop in El Paso, Texas in August, and my week-long workshop in Tokyo in December. You'll find details on all of these on our website. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have led people to take a chance on us and allowed us to grow. Along with my recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, I just released my latest ebook, Nine Pictures, Nine Stories, Volume 2. The first one got a great response, and I'm back with a follow-up where I discuss the stories behind nine images that I created last year. It's only $8, and your purchase is another way you can support the show. Purchase that and any of my previously published ebooks by visiting the website. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Thanks to Neely Drown, Andy Alexander, Zoe Gemelli, Joseph Smith, Melissa Schultz, Karen Sillis, and Kevin Zabel for their recent contributions. It means so much to me. And if you found that you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>